G'day, I'm Sam. Welcome to the Dance Culture Vibe podcast, where I take a look at the history and impact of dance music culture around the world. I'm a self-confessed rave nerd, and I invite you to join me on this journey. Let's get into it. We're all responding to a rapidly changing world. And I think to some extent, society globally has become detached from meaning and from truth. What do I mean by that? Well, public trust in the media is at an all-time low across most countries at this point. Language is being redefined and subverted in strange ways. And algorithms and artificial intelligence are making forays into our life and increasingly mediating the choices that we think that we're making. I believe in dance culture, and I think that there is something in the history of it that we can look at as an example to light the way forward for us all. My guest today is an Aussie music legend and cultural pioneer, Paul Mack. Paul is one half of the massively influential electronic music duo Itchy and Scratchy. He's a solo recording artist. He's collaborated with Daniel Johns of Silverchair, Kylie, Sia. His current music partnership with Johnny Seymour is called Stereogamous. He's a multiple ARIA award winner, which we cover in some detail. And he's one of the most thoughtful and insightful guests I've had the pleasure of talking to on the podcast. In this episode, we discuss... Sydney in the late 80s and the city's unstoppable lust for dance, the 90s rock rave divide, the human engine of music and culture, his infamous ARIA award speech, and much, much more. And with that, I bring you Paul Mack. How's everything in Sydney at the moment? Um, Sydney's pretty fucking blessed, to be honest. We... Just a different culture. Everyone embraced the lockdown and so we were locked down for a month or two and then um, poor Melbourne sort of copped it. They had a second wave, so they're in their second lockdown. Um, But so they're not allowed. They've had a curfew. You can only leave the house if you're going to work or to exercise. We all sort of had that the first round, but now it's kind of cool. Things are open. You can go to the pub. You can go to cafes. Um, but there's just sort of limits on how many people you can have and you can't dance, you can't sing. There's a few things you can't do, but I don't know. Australians are weird despite being a fucking colony of, you know, criminals. We actually do obey the law and have this sort of sense of, well, it's probably for the better good. If we do listen to the government, it's just different. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's always astounded me that one. It's a strange relationship to authority because, I mean, we've got someone like Ned Kelly as a national icon, but at the same time, yeah, like you said, there's this sort of obedience. Yeah, no, it's 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 odd. But, you know, it's kind of cool. People do pull together and for the greater good and all that sort of stuff. It's that totally different to America with that, you know, more individual rights thing. Yeah. And what about the situation with the lockout laws pre-COVID in Sydney? Uh, annoyingly, that was all just about to open up. Um, they realised that they'd sort of decimated the nightlife industry and that it wasn't great. 
and lots of people did move to Melbourne. Lots of young people moved to Melbourne because it was just more fun and shit's going on down there and it's still party town. But, you know, not now. But And then just at that moment, it all sort of shut down. So I don't know, but I think there's now kind of respect for, all right, well, when we get out of this, then we, we might approach it differently. But, you know, what's out of this look like? You know, when are we going to have sweaty, heaving dance floors again? I don't know, or mega festivals or any of that shit. I'm not sure. So speaking of sweaty, heaving dance festivals, let's go back to the late 80s in Sydney. Tell me a bit about what that was like. Um, it was pretty cool because I was into, I suppose because I'm, I'm older, right? So I'm 55 now. So I kind of caught the tail end of that weird period after punk. So with bands like Severed Heads and all that sort of weird synth um, synth pop, I suppose. So and like in Cabaret Voltaire and you know early Simple Minds and that sort of funky stuff. I was always into sort of electronic, slightly weirdo music, and then that sort of dovetailed in with um, you know, I wasn't like I wasn't out as gay at that point. So, but I just knew that there was cool dance music happening in the gay clubs, which sort of led to, oh wow, there's this thing called a rat party at the Paddington Town Hall, and I went to that. I, I would have been like twenty, maybe. I heard it on Triple J, like the public youth network, the um, saying, oh, there's this weird party at Paddington Town Hall. So I went on my own, and it was like the first big gay dance party I'd ever been to, and it was just what the fuck is this and this music what is this music which at that point being probably 85 86 would have been more you know still pretty vocal and high energy and just electronic sort of post-disco um but then that kind of just kept growing and growing and growing until we started having horden parties and the parties at the horden pavilion were just um they just grew and grew i mean so that sort of grew out of the mardi gras party so you know, every year there's a big gay and lesbian Mardi Gras, there's a big parade up Oxford Street, which is the main gay street, which would end at the showgrounds, which is just an area nearby. And inside there, there was the Horton Pavilion, which could probably take about 5,000 people. And then that grew and it took over the next room next to it, the, the, which also had about 5,000 people. Then it kept growing and adding more and more rooms till it was eventually like 20,000 people. So... Those parties, you know, and that first party I was telling you about, the rap party, I went on my own. I didn't know, like, anyone who'd be interested. I was kind of, yeah, I was still pretty suburban and still trying to work out my identity and, like, what the fuck's going on. But it was just like, wow, what's this world? This is pretty cool. Everyone seems really friendly. The music's really nice. And then sort of just got into it more and just the horde. And so the Mardi Gras parties became really, really popular. And then other people just realized, hey, we can do this. And so they started, other people put on initially gay promoters, like the rat parties that I went to, they moved to the horde. And then there's other ones like Sweatbox and Bacchanalia and all these other parties started happening there. And it just grew till there was like a massive 10,000 people dance party virtually every weekend. And that was just, you know, house, house all night long. Still, you know, a, sort of initially it was definitely that and a bit of girly vocals. And then it's just sort of um, as they became more mainstream and not just gay anymore, like lots of acts used to come out, like the Jungle Brothers and sort of 
anybody who had a top 40 hit that was sort of dancey would come out, you know, including sort of more horrible ones like Betty Boo. But then, <laughs> um, but you know, a diva would come and Frankie Knuckles would come and DJ and um, Grace Jones would perform and just like, they were mental. And for me, it was just like, who'd grown up on bands and been in bands, it was like, oh, wow, everyone faces each other and dances with each other and they are the show. They dress up, there's a theme, and they're the audience they're, and the the artists at the same time. So I suppose it was a bit of cultural and musical um, excitement, like what is this world? I, I want to be part of this. But still I wasn't – and at that, I was still in bands making – like in the early 90s, sort of doing experimentally stuff that was electronic-y based but still songy but heading towards something else. So 85, that that sort of precedes what we think of as a rave. Was ecstasy a big part of the scene at that point? Totally. (laughs) I mean, mean, the format was there. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it's... I've been I've been writing a thesis on this recently, so it's like, you know, it did come. Ecstasy was always from the gay clubs initially, as a you know, because it's an empathogen. So it is that thing where people want to hug and share the experience and sensuality without necessarily being sexual, but in this sort of um, heightened and open environment, I suppose. So um, I think it was always been part of the gay scene. In fact, it's definitely part of the case because I remember reading there was like a sort of scare article in one of the weekend magazines that was like, um, uh, you know, the the new the new drug that's in the gay scene, and you can get it from this pub and that pub, and you know, the next week instead of scaring me off, I went to that pub sort of looking for it, and it was just kind of like, wow, what is this? And so those parties, yeah, no, sure, that was all a part of it, but I think in a gay context, it was very much. I don't know, this open, uh, that felt less foreign that gays are open on the dance floor because it's um, it's less macho, it's less aggressive, it's in lots of different ways. Um, so it felt like a natural fit to it. So once those hoarding parties, they, they kept going until about 1990 until the cops got the shits and the neighbours got the shits with all the noise and they cracked down and stopped them, which is then, so it fragmented there. So that's where it sort of went into sort of smaller warehouse parties and one-off events in little places. And um, it kind of it, it coincided with lots of things. Like, um, let's say in 1990, you've already had sort of 87, 88 in the UK and the rave scenes happening. But when that got shut down in the UK, a lot of people went backpacking and traveling and stuff. So loads of DJs and promoters would come over from the UK to Australia for their sort of backpacking holiday and then start putting on their own parties. And um, that's, I think, would be the beginning of the rave scene in in Australia. But it's sort of like, it was always like hand in hand with the gay parties that were going on. So it was like, just I think it went from we're all in this together in the one room to, okay, this week there's a gay party over there. This week there's a, and not only that, but also fragmenting of genre. So we play techno or we play whatever, you know, Italo piano-y stuff or we play breakbeat or and then later on we play, you know, hardcore or we play dwarf or we play whatever. So I think it just sort of fragmented more and more from there. And yeah. 
That's funny you mentioned that that (laughs) newspaper article. When I lived in Sydney, I must have been probably 2000, 2001. There was a front page expose about Cafe Amsterdam in the cross. (laughs) And I was going to Scots College at the time very before being politely asked to leave um and one <laughs> afternoon some friends and i went straight to cafe amsterdam took off our ties and yeah had a had a funny story okay so that's interesting you mentioned about um the people coming from the uk and sort of cross-pollinating what do you know do you know the story of the welsh embassy in yeah, sydney so, yeah. could you tell me a bit about that i like i don't know them personally i just remember that there was a bunch, like there was the cartel and there was the Welsh Embassy because it was because of the nature of distribution, I suppose. It was like everyone worked in record shops. That's where you got the records. And if if me as a punter was looking for music, like there's a shop called Reaching Records that was the main one, which, um, and you built relationships like Phil Smart worked there, my music partner Johnny Seymour worked there, kind of everyone worked there. And I'd just go in weekly, just going, what do you got that's going to blow me away? And they would know my taste and I would know their taste. And so it was all, you know, and then there'd be flyers for the parties. Then you could buy tickets for for the parties from there. So it was very record shop centric. So it was not that hard to sort of get to meet the main players because kind of everyone either worked there or went there. So, and I think once the party started happening, every weekend it made sense to well let's not put parties on on the same weekend so i think there was a bit of collaboration between the different promoters to not sort of shit on each other and also to play at each other's events you know because there's only a limited amount of djs and that thing of like djs will play a particular style so you knew that if that person was playing you were going to get that sort of music so that would determine whether you went to the party or not so and so i just know the welsh embassy is one of them so I didn't really know them personally, but I just remember they put on parties. Um, something else you mentioned was about that divide between, you know, the, I guess the above ground and maybe people who listen to rock and this completely other world of people who listen to electronic music. <clears throat> I'm torn because on the one hand, I, I love the fact that everyone now can experience this and understand it. But at the same time, I feel like there is a trade-off by having that divide disappear uh, there's there's yeah. like something that's lost with that. Yeah, I mean, nothing stays the same. I mean, it's electronic music. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Electronic music for me was kind of a bit of a religion. It was like, I love this. I just love the fact that we can create whatever world we want to create. So, and I think when I was in Itchy and Scratchy, that was the goal. It was like, okay, let's play around with these abstract sound sources and see what we can make and then we'll title it this and it means that and we'd sort of create these whole worlds that you couldn't do in a band with traditional instruments so to me it was it was just it tapped into this larger revolutionary kind of way of making music or and way of looking at music that i found really really exciting um so it was underground definitely and it was a kind of there was such a divide between those that were into rock music and those that were into electronic music that only sort of broke down, you know, with, with the big day out and the boiler room and that sort of thing in Sydney, which is where, um, oh, should I tell that story? Please. <laughs> okay. So the big day out was the one big rock festival in Sydney, which then went national. 
and it was, you know, the first year they got Nirvana and it was like, you know, a thing and it became, just grew and grew and grew. Then they introduced um, a dance room called the Boiler Room, which um, was organized by Volition, which was the label that Itchy and Scratchy was on and Severed Heads was on and a lot of the key sort of early players were on. So I played at that every year, but you just see kids would be there to see Soundgarden and they'd come in in their black Soundgarden t-shirts and just go, what the fuck's this? This is, and just stay the rest of the day. So it was definitely a sort of crossover point, but you know, that it's, it's also not surprising that that was when the rise of like Fatboy Slim and sort of noisier, rockier dance music happened as well. And the prodigy and things like that. So it was, I don't know. It's, it's, Okay, fast forward, moving through that, a lot of the rock kids that went to that then went on to form their own sort of bands in the early 2000s, like the Presets and Cut Copy and Midnight Juggernauts and sort of guitar-based bands with a sort of dancey aesthetic, like not a million miles away from LCD Sound System or something. So I think it definitely had an influence back on rock music. But then, you know, fast forward to now and it's, there's, you know, after the a hideous EDM explosion of 2010 or whatever in the States, it just sort of like, and that just infiltrated pop. So there's no divide at all anymore between electronic music and, and not electronic music. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I've got, you know, I teach these days and I've got students that make beautiful music on their laptops at home. And I think it's amazing that they can do that. It's not an underground culture anymore, but I don't know. Um, I think it's cool that people can make, uh, the whole new sound worlds on their little laptops at home. Do you think that it's possible for music to sound futuristic these days? I feel as though in the early days of electronic music, a lot of those sounds, you, you almost couldn't imagine them until you hear them for the first time, but there's no parameters now. So can you still be, can you still have that feeling of hearing something that sounds like it's come from the future? <laughs> Yeah, no, because I think the only the way pop music works is that somebody has a big song, everyone tries to copy it, and then everyone gets bored of that sound. And then the next year, or the next person up who, you know, tries to push something new, and then everyone tries to copy that, and then you end up, and here we are with Billie Eilish. So it's like it's just, it, I think it's always trying to move forward in its electronicness and to find new ground and new atmospheres and new possibilities. Um, but it's just, yeah. I don't think that that will ever stop because people just get bored. And that's the whole point of music and culture is to move forward and invent new genres. I just don't think it's that divide is there anymore for lots of reasons, be it financial or technological. So the big day out played a massive role in Australia. So did triple J mm. and in the U S and I suppose the, the nearest example would be in the UK, the BBC, but the U S doesn't have, anything quite like Triple J. Could you talk a bit about the influence that that had on Australia and also the influence of Rage on on our ABC, the public broadcaster? Yeah, I mean, it's totally because it's, there was only probably, you know, a few funnels that all this music came down through. One of them was Rage, which was stay up all night and watch music videos, which would probably, you know, the lady you got, the weirder it got, and it'd be great when you got home from wherever and it's 4am and there's, you know, super weird clips happening. And Triple J was, I suppose Triple J went national. I can't remember what year, it was probably the early 90s, which sort of coincided with the Boiler Room going national as well. So suddenly there was an outlet for 
dance music and it was playlisted so that previously when it was just Sydney centric, it was, um, you'd have different DJs who played their, their different styles. And if you wanted dance music, you tuned in on Friday at four o'clock, you know, it's, there was, it was that sort of thing. But once stuff got playlisted, it meant it just got this massive reach. And I knew when Itchy and Scratchy started, we got really lucky with that song, Sweetness and Light, and it got heaps of airplay on Triple J. And I just knew that there was some kid on a farm in, you know, outback Western Australia who was listening to this. And that felt immensely powerful and beautiful that you could, you know, you could reach those other sort of loners who weren't quite sure of themselves or the world and sort of tap into that feeling with your music. So, I, you know, we we were really lucky. We ended up, they have this thing called a Hottest 100 every year and we got, I can't remember where we landed, but it was pretty high up. And, um, you know, it was, it was a big deal if you got on that. It was a really big deal for your career, you know. Ended up winning an ARIA and got on their top whatever CD, their top 100 CD and a Hottest 100 and ended up, you know, making a bit of money, which is nice. <laughs> I remember that era very well. And I remember hearing Sweetness and Light on Triple J. I was young at the time and I didn't, I didn't know what I was hearing, but I on some level knew that it was kind of illicit, like – I think the word that you used before was atmosphere and it was an atmosphere that I had never experienced at that age. Right. So right. A lot for me. Which is the goal. That is like the full goal of electronic music is just to continually do that. Sometimes you hit it on the head. I mean, it's weird. I've been listening to our back catalog cause we're talking about re-releasing like most of it's not out there on Spotify or anything. So we've been going through and most of it's so heavily like ridden with samples that we can't clear that we can't release most of it. So we've been going back, like listening to what's there. Most of it I've been finding on, you know, illegal posts on YouTube because I don't have copies of it anymore, but uh, it's been funny because it, that's, that was the goal every single time. And I know that, that song, um, Andy, who was itchy at the time, hated it. And I think it was saved on our floppy disc as girly disco track. You know, it's just like, it was just one of these ideas of many. And, um, but that was the one that just had the right ingredients that connected with people like you and a lot of other people that was just made out of the same process that we'd always done. I find that amazing because still, I feel like that track is just undeniable. Oh, wow. Thank like you. The, the, I, I can't imagine hearing it and not feeling that way. So you guys um, were in the hottest 100. I think it was 94 and was your Aria in 95. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with this. Let, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the acceptance speech at the Aria Awards. All right. So it was 95 and it was the second year that they'd actually had a dance category so and you know when we talk about that sort of divide between rock and dance music nobody took dance music seriously or i we always felt that the record companies didn't get it they just thought you know rock was authentic and you know electronic music was weird and gay or something so it was like i i was, was always a bit i felt really proud that the first year that the person that won the dance category was like a soap star who had a sort of dance pop single and it was like okay you know these guys don't get dance music because this is like 94 so we're a bunch of years into the whole sort of revolution and then so we ended up winning and uh, so we went and hadn't didn't think we'd win at all because it was just like so unlikely 
So Andy, Andy didn't even show up. I went with Sheriff Lindo, who was like the third sort of part of the band. And I didn't prepare a speech or anything. And then we we're sort of laughing at the whole thing. It was my first ARIA Awards. I was like, oh, well, this is pretty cute. This is funny. We got invited. Free drinks is great. And then um, they started to announce it. And the camera starts flying over in our direction before it. It's like, oh, fuck. I think we've won. So then, and then they announced it. And then it was like, I just remember going to like slow motion, just sort of running towards the stage, but it just felt like I was in fully slow motion. And I got there, I got to the microphone and just sort of wanted to, I mean, for us, it was a religion, you know, I think dance music and techno and what it represented was a kind, some kind of revolution. I don't know what that, what, what sort of revolution, no, it's about personal freedom or sort of fuck you to the rest of that world i don't know but got there and because i hadn't really prepared anything i just sort of went into the stream of consciousness and was just going look we did this on our own you don't need record companies because we didn't it was all very independent it was all recorded at home we had no you know not much money not much equipment so you know you can do it your own kids it was that sort of sort of <laughs> speech to sort of rail up the troops and then i was like you know i'm so thinking all the sort of components of that culture, which was like public radio who played it all the time, you know, DJs, the ravers, and it just sort of kept going and sort of ended on and the ecstasy dealers. And then that was it. That was my last one. So I just finished and walked off stage, not sort of really realizing what I'd done because it was, it wasn't planned. It just sort of fell out because it was just, I was so excited and I, and to some degree, I still believe in what I did. It was like, you know, I think <laughs> I think that the sort of fuck you attitude and the strength of that belief is real and I was proud of it. And when we got backstage, that, <laughs> that year, by the way, the ARIA Awards were sponsored by this government program called the Drug Offensive, which is like <laughs> just say no sort of campaign. So, of course, everyone was really angry with me. And you go back and as soon as you get off, they take your award away and then you walk out into a press room. And it's funny because all the sort of dance press, which was pretty young at the time, there wasn't that much of it, were there. And they were just like cheering and like fists in the air and kind of thing. So it was like, (laughs) it was a kind of defining moment. But then in some ways, it was sort of one of the best career moves I ever made because that sparked my relationship with Daniel Johns who from Silverchair, who who were also up for a zillion awards that night. And he was like, I want to work with the Ecstasy guy. So that started my kind of whole remix career because I started remixing them and doing production for that. <laughs> I mean, the irony of it is it's probably the most rock and roll move you could have made. Mm. True. <laughs> it was funny. The presenters just did not ho- know how to take it. And I guess like most of those award shows, it was all very plastic and sort of there wasn't there wasn't a lot of natural flow to it and then you guys just sort of bound up on stage and just have this amazing moment <laughs> i want to talk about the climate in australia shortly after that um a young girl anna wood died after taking ecstasy there were a whole range of reasons why she passed away but what was the atmosphere like after that and was there any backlash to the award speech in relation to that yeah i mean that was that was i suppose when we started talking about that is why it's you know like when i think about that culture 
And what you know, there's plenty of people taking lots of drugs and doing really stupid things and driving without sleep and driving for miles to parties in fields down the coast and doing lots of stuff. None of which you'd recommend now. And you know, there's obviously, God, I'm 55. I party with a lot of people, and there's been a lot of casualties. So you know, it's not like it's you know great for everyone, and it was an awesome outcome for everyone. But you know, there was definitely. Um, a spirit and vibe to it. And I think when she died, it was, you know, unbelievably sad. And the start of a sort of media backlash against this, we've got to control this. I remember there was a, um, we did a rave after that. There's this massive rave called Happy Valley, which was in, I don't know, 94 or five or something down the South coast. And a bunch of people had accidents on the way home because they hadn't slept. The cops came in the morning, kicked everyone out. People had sort of planned to stay there for the day and then drive home a bit safer later on. So it became this like dance craze that kills headlines sort of vibe. So and I still remember that because it was, um, <laughs> it was one of those dumb, you know, tabloid things of what to look out for if your kid's doing this. And it'd be like, they listen to you know, they wear these sort of clothes and they might have lollipops or, you know, even, you know, that guy from Itchy and Scratchy thanked the ecstasy dealers. So it's obviously part of the culture, you know. So it's like there was definitely a backlash and that um, just pushed things further and further underground. So it just meant, you know, smaller warehouse parties, bush doofs, you know, going further and further away from the city. The C- Sydney Council really cracked down on, you know, parties in legal warehouses and stuff like that. So... I don't know, just kind of got harder to do. Um, and I think it was really trying to, they were trying to push it back into the clubs and have some kind of regulation on it all. But still, having said that, the 90s was still a really golden period. It was like, there's definitely a backlash, but it, the club culture was exploding and it was like everyone was embracing it. And it um, it wasn't just the gay clubs now, it was everywhere. So I don't know, it was, it was still a really fun, loose time um, but there's, there's lots of factors with that, you know, it certainly, I don't know, I don't know how much I feel about talking about drug culture, but there's been, you know, waves of drugs that come through. Some of them are better than others, you know, and then I think in Sydney in the 2000s, you know, like crystal meth hit and then suddenly it's like, ugh, this is awful. Why people to go home and sleep for fuck's sake? You know, it's like some, you know, some periods feel better culturally and, health and sanity wise and you know i think at that point it was you know the danger signs were beginning to appear here and there but overall it was pretty good but yeah i don't know how how do you ever you know if you met and in fact um anna wood's parents ended up the father ended up becoming quite a vocal campaigner and you know if i was to bump into him in the street i don't think i'd be able to go yeah but the culture's really cool you know like (laughs) sorry like you know like how do you fucking answer that i don't know so you know it's a mixed bag Mm. i I think i think it also is strange the way that australia again that that relationship to authority because on the one hand we used to have on-site pill testing and we had some politicians who were quite vocal about that and then we got sniffer dogs and we got bigger crackdowns and I don't know. I just, yeah, there's no answers, I guess, at this stage. I mean. It's it's weird, you know, like post the Olympics and then suddenly there's all these sniffer dogs with nothing to do. So that's, you know, uh, one argument for why suddenly that became a thing. But it's, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think the 90s was so loose that, um, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it coincided with lots of things. It was like a police commission and talk about corruption and being seen to be transparent and not bought off by clubs and stuff. So things definitely shifted. But I'd also push some people to just do dumber things, you know, like being more dangerous and because you couldn't be as open about it. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm all for harm minimization myself. Yeah, me too. And uh, I guess uh, with all the lockout laws in Sydney, the casino was able to remain open, right? Yeah, and that's, you know, you want to find a fight, go there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so moving back to a, a more positive note, music. Yes, Do you think that we value music in the same way as we used to when we're not investing in it? Uh, really good question. Um, we're surrounded by it. It's kind of free. It's everywhere. Anyone can release it. So I don't know. Has it shifted? And yeah, I'm with you. I ask this question every day, particularly as a teacher. It's like, is is it better or worse or different? So it's like definitely... I think the quality of dance music is pretty awful now. It's harder and harder to sift through the sludge. I mean, to be to be fair, I've always liked about ten percent of dance music and thought the other ninety percent was really boring. So it's just, it's you know I just think that that rate's probably the same, but there's just like so much more to sift through to get to that ten percent. But um, and it's easier to make and it's easier to release. But so on one way, I think some quality controls dipped. But on another way, I really enjoy seeing people being able to make music you know so if musicking is you know a verb then cool it's yeah if music's a verb rather than a noun great it's maybe there's more people participating in a different way and you know maybe nobody's going to make money off it or very few people will but the value is in creation so i don't know there's an upside to that i just i just i try not to be old man punching at clouds that's kind of a bit of a rule like i try and find the positive in stuff and i think the fact that there is this freedom to explore that world by lots of people that's really cool you know the downside is there's lots of boring music out there but you know that's part of the price do you think that the saturation is leading to shorter cycles of genres or or trends i don't know it's also like you know, someone who sort of lived through it, you can see the lines and you can see the waves and the, you know, from one summer to the next, there was a new sound and a new genre and a new subgenre of that. And it all made sense. Everything was kind of a reaction to the previous thing before it. So, you know, if it was like Acid House, but then hang on, we miss Melody. So suddenly it's a Tello House and then hang on, we're getting bored. This, this you know, rave is faster there's break beats and then suddenly we got jungle and drum and bass and then you know then it, well, we just want it to be like rock and then suddenly it's like big beat and then you know sort of at the same time there's like trance and you know deep house sort of bubbling away doing its thing but then as at some point you know you hit a wall probably after like you know edm where it's like okay what else can we do let's go back to acid so then suddenly you know everyone was you know getting their 303 out again and doing acid lines and you know recently i just can't believe how much break 
like stuff with breakbeats in it there is even in pop music you know it's like wow they are using the yeah woo sample like wow that's amazing so i mean but as a if if you're a youngster you wouldn't know any of that lineage so it's just like this sounds cool so it doesn't matter to them so i mean i just find it you can't be sort of on the vanguard for what it, what decade are we in now since disco like this is the fifth i suppose so like or even if we take it from say the 80s when like the start of house and techno that's still a long time it's hard to keep moving forward and keep reinventing the wheel with so few ingredients and you know i don't know i think great i think it's like as long as it's good i don't care i don't care if it sounds like it's recycling or retro or trying to be authentic or whatever it's just all right those kids have discovered breakbeats and acid cool let's see what they do with it with better you know it's funny <laughs> i had this one student who said to me once i really i hate listening to music before 2016 it just sounds awful and it was just hilarious and i just thought wow i i can understand that sure it did sound awful like like sort of on a sonic level like it just didn't have the punch and drive that stuff has now so um, I think it, I, I want to see what that those ideas sound like through this equipment. I don't know. I'm just, I'm open to the future. Tell me about teaching. What's it like interacting with people who are coming into it for the first time, or at least at an early stage of their career? Oh, man, I, I adore it because it's people coming in and they can do a couple of things. They can, you know, write a melody and they can put some chords together or they might put some drums together. And then, because and then initially I was kind of intimidated because it was like, fuck, some of these kids know that software better than I am and they're way quicker than I am because they're young. But it's like, oh, but I've, then I realized, oh, but I've had 30 years of listening and making decisions about from listening, like quite deep decisions about where you, you want to take it and how it all unfolds. So I suppose I really enjoy it now because it's like, I just encourage that aspect of it. Like, where are you taking this? What's it, um, where's the journey and where's the drama of it? Like, how can, how can you make this um, more dramatic, essentially? Like, and, and I think part of that comes from the process of how we used to write, which was two people, a bunch of equipment, going live through a desk to a DAP machine that you later edited all the fun bits together in Pro Tools at the mastering guy's house. And it just meant that you'd just get these really radical changes and like say, my favorite track for Itchy and Scratchy is we've got this track called Awaken, which is like about 30 minutes long. And it's just made up of all these jammed bits and you just go, wow, from four minutes to six and a half minutes, it's incredible. Then from nine minutes to 11 minutes, it's great. And you just edit all the bits together. And whenever the edit happened, the whole world shifted because over that gap, you've been moving the EQ and the amount of reverb and all that sort of stuff. So I think that grounded history in doing that performative style mixing with four hands on a 16 channel desk. Okay, you ready? Okay, I'm going to do the hi-hat. You got the kick drum? Go. Bang. You know, or that introduction was shit. Let's do it again. So it was, it was really performative and embodied kind of thing, which is kind of missing from just, you know, doing stuff in the box. So I kind of feel like the one value that I might have that, that, that I can offer the kids is that experience. And that all comes out of really kind of deep listening. So I really enjoy it. I really 
encourage them to listen deeply and sort of just see how far they can push themselves without sort of imposing my aesthetic on them. How long do you have the students for? Is it for the length of a semester or for a year or what's that time frame? Uh, it's kind of all different. I get, you know, one group, I get them every third year, but then I have individual students as well. So it's like, um, it's cool. Some of them are amazing. So it's like I'd, I'd happily, there's one I'm, I've got at the moment who is like, actually, I'm working on this track. I might chuck it to you if you want to do some additional production because this stuff's amazing. So it's like, you know, I don't know. It's just all about encouragement. It's fantastic. So what what's doing it for you musically these days? Well, going back to your question of do we value stuff as much, it's weird. I mean, I I suppose from day one, I've always wanted to be blown away by the next thing. So I've never been one to sort of go back and just listen to old albums all the time. You know, yes, I love Screamadelica, but I've heard it six million times. Oh, like it's, I don't need to revisit old dance music. So for me, it's always been what's next, which is kind of the whole point of techno is futurism so that's what we're always trying to do come up with new sounds so i want to hear new sounds so kind of in some ways spotify discovers amazing because it's like the upside is just that this endless you know slightly curated by yourself deluge of new tracks that you can skip if you don't like and save if you do so that's the upside. The downside is I couldn't tell you one name of one artist that I'm loving at the moment because they're all just weird individual tracks from a weird individual artist that I have no engagement or investment in. But, yeah, I could get my phone out and look at a playlist, but it's like, I don't know, I kind of don't love any particular artist at the moment, but I love heaps of really cool new tracks that take me to places that are like, oh, fuck, I would never have thought of that. That's so cool. You know, it's just that's all I live for is hearing music that just blows me away. And it's, and it's been like that since I was, you know, 16, and I still feel like that now. And I, I want to hold on to that for as long as I can before you just get jaded. <laughs> I quite like that aspect of anonymity. And I can't remember who I heard this quote from, but they were talking about the early days of Rave, and they said that, it was like the music was just sort of creating itself. Yeah, sure, sure. And, you know, like with vocals from wherever, like who cared who was doing the vocal, you know, although right on time, which, is, you know, of course, Lee Holloway would have cared, but to the rest of the world, it didn't matter who the singer was. It was just a bunch of sounds, you know, collected together in, in an exciting way um, rather than going down the front of the the concert hall to see the artists on the stage you know that's that's still what i do love about dance music <clears throat> which unfortunately you know put your phones away and stop facing the fucking dj and dance <laughs> that's what i think that what kills me about the culture now it's like it's, the dj is not the entertainment the dj should be in a dark corner of the club just reading the room that's how i've always understood it and have felt really uncomfortable when it's not been that but you need to do things because that's what people expect but you know the dj should just be there doing the music and feeling it you've hit a real nerve for me every single episode i talk about phones on the dance floor and oh. whether or not we can all we can experience a shared moment when we're not actually all present 
And I, yeah. I think a lot about what that's doing, not just to the culture, but to, to society generally. I don't know what the solution is. I think the solution is that the kids are going to do what the kids are going to do. So it's like the culture will just shift. I mean, I have no, and like even we're going to have a fucking two year gap in this culture, probably, or whenever a vaccine is going to happen. So what's going to happen on the other side of that? Um, I don't know. Part of that is just me being an old fart. It's like, I don't go out as much as I used to. So I don't care as much, frankly, but I think on a culture level, I just think, you know, the kids are doing what the kids are doing and, and it's never going to be like it was in the nineties. So I'm just letting go of that, you know, that dream scenario. I mean, you still find it, you still, you know, on trips to Burkine or weird little clubs in wherever that you've been to that I, you, I end up being at if I go when we used to go traveling overseas um, in the before times, but it's like, I don't know, like what's going to happen on the other side of that. I don't know, but I think, the answer is always underground. It's like the people that believe in the spirit of what we're trying to do are going to be found in smaller clubs. The people at big festivals are there for the event and they're going to have their phones out because they want to record that they're at the event. So I'm, I think it's still going to be there. There's always be pockets of it, but just go where it's smaller. Mm. There is a bit of a stigma around having your phone on the dance floor, especially out here in the underground in the warehouse parties. I feel like it's a case where the kids are wrong and I'm okay to say that because I feel like it, I know for, that it's objectively a superior experience as a human um, because the problem with phones, aside from taking away from the present moment, is they basically become a form of surveillance and you're living yeah. in this panopticon, not, yeah. even, not even about crime, just about like, I don't know, how, how am I going to look on film? How's this video going to make me seem to an audience who aren't here? It's just, yeah, the kids are I, wrong. I, I, could, I could not agree more, but it's the kids' world. It's like it's they're going to reframe it into whatever they want to reframe it into. So it's like, yeah, I know that it's much better without phones because I've lived in both, but they haven't. So that's their world. Then they can... You know, I think it's super unfortunate because I, I do, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I suppose what I don't try and do is prescribe to anybody else what they should believe in. I mean, it's great. I'm, and I'm also glad that there are clubs where that ban phones or put stickers over the camera. Great. It's good. More of that, please. But how do you like stop that? You know, mm. it's where the culture's at. Um, but, you know, there will always be places where that's unacceptable and cool. I'll just go there. That's my answer. I'm not, I just don't want to tell anybody else what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting the way um, the underground's shifting as well. I was talking to a photographer a few weeks ago, Michael Tolberg. He documented the rave scene out here in LA. And we were on the topic of how the underground advertises now and how they vet attendees and the culture that was originally incredibly open and just everyone can come. It's cool, whatever there's there's a need now to have to sort of scan who's coming in so they obviously do that through the social media profiles to prevent so what just to prevent the wrong kind of vibe i think um i i'm I, something else i'm torn on because i see the need for it in in this age where everything's immediately visible and you can attract the wrong element or even just get the wrong kind of exposure but 
it might end up becoming a bit of an echo chamber and you're not really attracting those people who would happen upon the event through serendipity, right? You're just yeah, right. getting more of the same. Yeah, sure. And yeah, well, and it's fucking social media. Like it's like when I suppose when it was word of mouth, it was like there was a certain inbuilt vetting process that you would invite people that mm. you wanted to be there. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. How do you do? Have you that? seen that recent doco, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix? No. What's it about? Highly recommend it. It's by this guy Tristan Harris, who was an ethicist for Google. And his sort of, I guess you'd call him a whistleblower. And he talks a lot about how the structure of social media is pretty much warping the minds of everyone in society. And he goes into detail about it. And he said, you know, you're looking at your phone, you see a screen, but on the other side of that screen is the world's most powerful AI filtering Mm. straight back at you. So it's a really timely documentary, especially for out here in the US where everything's so polarized. And I mean, I, I actually went up to Portland not long ago. I spoke about this a few weeks ago and I happened to go to one of the riots. I went to two of the riots just to observe. And what I saw was not what was reported. What yeah, was right. reported was a complete lie. And then I watched as people took those lies and argued on their behalf like they were truth. And mm. I saw that so clearly and i feel like that's what's deranging everyone at the moment especially you know obviously with covid and conspiracy theories because i'm seeing a lot of people that i f- i respect and otherwise feel are quite quite intelligent and worldly hitting me with these bizarre conspiracy theories so something strange is going on on a bigger level i know but like what do you personally do about that apart from you know well i'm off facebook that's cool I, I just got to take periods off Twitter where it's mm. like, I mean, even last week I had this, uh, I had a really shit week and I was like, I, I thought I, I need to support the news because I could just see all this stuff coming out of the, the US and it's like, so I, I, I changed my title subscription, subscription, which I never use. I went, okay, I'll, I'll delete that and I'll support the Guardian just so, that, you know, I felt like at least I'm supporting, you know, real news. But then I was reading that for a few days and I just felt suicidal. It was so dark. It was just, you know, seas rising, Trump, COVID, like, uh, this is like impossible. So I don't know. It's like, you. what can you do with that? Um, apart from personal choices of staying off it or trying to put good out into the world in other ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like, with teaching, at least I feel like I'm doing something positive of giving something back um, or making music that put people in a, uh, a frame of mind that makes them um, enjoy their life a bit more. Um, I don't know. Yeah, look, I'm with you. My social media is, uh, I wish Facebook never got invented like most of us, but it's like, it's here now. What do you do about it? Just work around it, I guess, have conversations in real life. Yeah, no, totally. It's hard out here with COVID because everything's still pretty locked down. So I feel like people aren't able to get a good gauge on what everyone else is thinking and feeling. You're only seeing it conveyed in this performative way on social media where it's like a public conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's America's terrifying at the moment. Just watching it from over here, it's just, uh, wow. And you don't know what to believe. It's like 
because you're only getting your echo chamber. So it's like, how could people believe in Trump is, you know, how I would see the world, but I just, I don't, I'm not reading what they're reading. So it's like, I don't know how that is even possible that these situations can happen, but ish. I believe in rave culture. (laughs) True. And I mean, like the thing that I do believe in, in Sydney, which the last party we had before um, COVID lockdown was kooky, which is, a party with, that's been going on for 25 years that's um but you know my, my music partner is part of he's done that forever and it was beautiful and it's a kind of cross-generational party's been going for so long that there's you know old farts like me and then there's also the next generation of queer kids coming through discovering it you know or being invited to it and it's got like a another wind of sort of energy in it and that's that's enough to keep me holding on in club culture it's like um yeah, that's enough. You can find your spiritual home and your logical family if you look hard enough, and that's all I can control. So that's all I'm going to, you know, believe in. And <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lovely note to end on. Yeah, me too. Paul Mac, <laughs> thank you very much. Where can people find you online? Um, on Twitter, I'm the Paul Mac. On Instagram, I'm a Paul Mac. Um, if you or my music stuff, there's at the moment one partnership I've got is Stereogamous. So if you just think monogamous, we'll put stereo at the front. We're up on SoundCloud and Spotify and stuff. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of Paul Mac stuff on on the streaming services as well. I did a really crazy ass album about two years ago as part of this uh, doctorate that I'm doing. So I've been doing way more abstract, weirdo electronic stuff now that isn't necessarily dance floor based. So that's, if you want to go on a bit of a trip, that's, there's an album called Mesmerism. That's, um, that's my last favorite thing. So yeah, I'd highly recommend that. Check it out. Paul Mac, <laughs> thank you very much. Cheers. Lo- lovely hanging, Samuel. That was great. I mentioned in my discussion with Paul the impact that Itchy and Scratchy's track Sweetness and Light had on me when I was growing up. I didn't stress it much at the time because I didn't want to fan out too hard, but fuck. That track was probably the first exposure to real underground dance music that I can remember. And in my world, as a kid, it just came out of nowhere. I had no point of reference for it. It was just a new way of looking at things. Undeniable. In fact, my once beloved and now defunct in the mix.com.au in a very competitive field crowned Sweetness and Light as Australia's greatest dance track of all time. Quite right. It's good to be back after being away for a week from the podcast. I had to escape the wildfire smoke here in LA. So I took a road trip out to Austin to stay with some friends and then drove back through the heartland of Texas and New Mexico. I went to the UFO Museum in Roswell and then through the desert of Arizona. I don't know why aliens have been an ongoing theme for me this summer. I think it's probably all the roadside attractions I've been visiting along Route 66 over the past few months. It's the summer of alien. Um, Thanks for joining me. Find me on all the social channels with the at Dance Culture Vibe accounts. And I'll catch you here next week. Cheers.